Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. This episode of Military Wife Life is proudly brought to you by Defence Bank. Serving those who protect us, Defence Bank have the largest on-base branch network with 37 locations around Australia. They have Army, Air Force and Navy covered. To find your closest branch, visit defencebank.com.au. Today's podcast guest deserves a standalone introduction. She is someone who has undoubtedly had an impact on all of our lives, spouses and defense members, past and present. She isn't a spouse. She at the time had no prior connection to defense, but what she would go on to do in the defense space back in the 1980s would result in so many of the services and conditions provided for us today. I'm talking, she's the reason DCO and Defence Families Australia exist. She is the reason some of today's key allowances and conditions exist. And despite all of that, most of us living the military life today wouldn't even know who this person is. Her name is Sue Hamilton, and she's the author of what would go on to be known as the Hamilton Report. The Hamilton Report broke new ground. It identified for the first time all of the issues that service in the Australian Defence Force creates for the spouses and families of its members. It recognised that ADF policy should pay attention to the needs of the spouse and family, to their quality of life, and to acknowledge the effect a member's service in the ADF has on spouses and families. There was nothing like it before, and dare I say, there has been nothing like it since. Welcome, Sue Hamilton, to the Military Wife Life podcast. Thank you, Beck. It's great to be here. I'm in the Zoom room with the legend <laughs> of the Hamilton Report. I feel like I'm with a celebrity in the defence world. I don't think quite a celebrity, bit, but someone who's been interested in this for a long, long time, I think is a, a good way of putting it. In 1986, you took part in a joint press conference with the then Defence Minister, Kim Beasley, yeah. to release a report that was called Supporting Service Families, a report on the main problems facing spouses of Australian Defence Force personnel and some recommended solutions. That report became known as the Hamilton Report. Can you talk us through how the Hamilton Report came about? There were two driving forces that came together. The very practical one was that at that time, there was a lot of what Defence likes to call wastage in the senior ranks. Officers were leaving at the rate of about 600, 650 a year, which meant that in five years, they were losing something like 30% of their officer cohort across the services. And these were people late 30s early 40s and they were basically fed up with a lot of them their families were fed up and so defense was worried about that because they were people who were getting to a point in their career where they were senior there'd been a lot of investment in their training and then they were just going so they wanted to do something about that there was a will to do something about that at the same time Kim Beasley who'd been minister for about a year then he was visiting bases to basically survey his defense empire you know um, Kim was gorgeous he was a lovely lovely man but he did love all the toys that went with defense but he wanted to visit lots of bases and meet lots of people and find out about this new world that he was now responsible for and he was quite surprised at a couple of bases that he 
he went to, particularly at Holsworthy and particularly in Townsville, where there were big concentrations of families, that some of the, the women, and in those days, most of the people who were married to service personnel were women, and they bailed him up and they let him know in no uncertain terms that they were not happy with what was going on. So he wanted to do something about it. Now, at that time, I was working in the office for the status of women, which the Prime Minister Hawke had put into his own department. He felt that was a very important thing to do. And he'd put Anne Summers, who's a very well-known feminist legend, in charge of this office, which was a very interesting and forward-thinking thing to do because she was not a bureaucrat. She had no bureaucratic background. She was basically a journalist and a writer and a, an important thinker. Anyway, so I was working in her office and they thought, well, because this is basically going to be about women, maybe someone from women's policies and someone who's in the prime minister's department, because that's a department with a lot of heft, is good. My job in that office was actually about talking to people about what they wanted from government. In all my public service career up to then, my main interest had been how governments talk to people and how people talk to governments. From my point of view, you know, when someone said to me, would you like to go and do this job? That was fantastic. You know, all these things I'd been thinking about, there was a chance to actually take them up and do something from beginning to end. And at that point, could almost have been about any issue in the women's field. It wasn't that I thought this is about defence, hooray, because I had absolutely no experience of defence. You know, none of my family, well, except during the wars, had ever been in the defence forces. At that stage, it was an intellectual exercise for me, but one that I was extremely interested in doing. It was the fact that people were, spouses were bailing Kim Beasley up ba- ba- and, and Beasley. telling him, what yes. was actually happening on the ground that yeah, he was like right. uh we yeah. need to do something that's exactly right yeah it was he, he just desperately needed to do something and he wanted to do something i think that was also important when i arrived in defense the timetable that he set was very short and so there was a question about you know how would we do this what would we actually do and a lot of people in the research community at that time said to me look what we need to do is do a great big quantitative survey you know send out lots of questionnaires compile all the data analyze it do all that and i interestingly kicked back against that quite hard and i think put a few noses out of joint by doing that because i i had the, the sense that that wasn't what the women wanted they actually wanted someone to come and talk to them you know they wanted somebody to hear what they were saying they didn't just want to fill in bits of paper and surveys all the time and also they wanted to feel that they had a direct line so we decided that what I would do would be to try to visit as many bases as possible to see and hear as many people as possible in various ways and thinking about if I'd been doing a survey I thought I would have been happy with about a 10% sample of people but in the end I did actually get four and a half thousand people at various meetings so we got a big group of people to talk to people wrote me letters about what was going on I did radio talk back you know I traveled to all the major concentrations of defense personnel in Australia I traveled to some outback places I mean, because it would have been very easy just to send out a survey and get oh, yeah. people to fill it out and fill it back. But what would really that accomplish? Because that had already been done before. You were feeling like you really needed to see people face to face and have them tell you tell me. Yeah. for themselves with their heart and soul what yeah. was actually going on. That's exactly right. 
Yeah. And I felt that was, in some ways, that was grittier than a survey. And that was what was needed then because people were really angry. People were upset and something needed to be done about it. So we decided to do it that way. You weren't coming from the perspective of a spouse or a military member when you were tasked to go forward and do the report. Did you anticipate what it would result in? Like you didn't have any connection. You, You know, you weren't as yet passionate about this area. You were passionate about the method. So how did you feel going into it? And did you wonder whether people would be forthcoming with, you know, talking to you? I wondered whether they would talk to me. I like talking to people. I'm interested in people. And I think that was important that somebody turned up who was actually interested in in hearing what they had to say. I mean, I had no idea what the issues were going to be. I really was going into it quite blind in many ways. I think that was good because I was hearing it and I was filtering it through my own perceptions of what was going on. And, you know, out the end came what I thought about it. Do you think it was an advantage that one, you're a woman and that two, that you weren't connected to defence? So people felt free to be able to tell you what was actually going on? I think the fact that I wasn't connected to defence was a big advantage in terms of getting people to talk. You know, some people were worried about repercussions of talking. There was one base on which the the serving members were pulled up and rebuked by a senior officer because they'd let their wives come to this meeting and complain. Had that real feel then that, yeah, you were the spouse and you just have to follow your defence member around the country and don't complain about it and that's that. And I mean, there was that awful saying that people used to say to me all the time, which is, you know, if you were supposed to have a family, you would have been issued with one. Obviously, you mentioned you had not a a great amount of time to conduct the report and to visit all the different bases. Where did you even start? I got a lot of help, particularly, I have to say, from the wives of of base commanders who were very keen to organise something. Some of them weren't, you know, some of them were were not so interested. And, you know, we certainly got a very good response where those people were were prepared to get out and mobilise people to come to the meetings. And we also also wanted to go to some of the, the community services that were around the base to see, you know, what their perception of what the issues were, you know, how they dealt with their clients and what proportion of their clients, you know, were defence people. And I remember one place that I went to, they said that in the community, there were 10% of people who were associated with defence and 50% of this services clients were defence people. So there were obviously some big social needs that weren't being met. What was the clear theme or the consistent feedback that was coming through straight away that you were picking up? Okay, well, this is the same things are being said to me at each base. Um, It was about employment, employment opportunities. And I'll give you my favourite employment story, which is when I went up to Exmouth, and I think we had 32 families up there, something like that. And out of those, eight of the women had actually managed to find work. Four of them were peeling prawns in the local prawn factory, and four of them were looking after the kids of the women who were peeling prawns in the prawn factory. So it wasn't a good employment environment for anybody. And they particularly sent married people to Exmouth because if they sent single people, they would wipe themselves out on the 14-hour drive back to Perth every weekend. And so they wanted people who would stay in the community to be up there. So employment was a huge issue. And I talked to a lot of the local business groups too about that and about the difficulty of people not wanting to take people who would move on. At that time, that was the other big issue. Because of this wastage that we talked about earlier, there was 
a huge movement of people between positions. And so postings were becoming more and more a ridiculous sort of merry-go-round ride. You know, I met people who'd, who'd had 23 postings who just couldn't keep up with where they were anymore. And a lot of them were quite agoraphobic. They didn't want to integrate with another new community every six months. And that was a big issue for employers because they could see that these people were on the move and they didn't want to employ them. Education was important. The movement of kids from school system to school system and not being sure where they were placed in different school systems throughout Australia, the difference in education, that sort of thing. That was a big issue too. Those are the ones that hit me in the face immediately. So at the time, the message you were getting from Defence Chiefs was that they knew about the problem areas, but they were helpless to get anything done about it. How much sway do the Defence Chiefs have when it comes to the Minister and change? Like, is it more about the Defence Chiefs seeing what they think is a priority and taking that forward to the Minister? Like, how does it work if they were saying that their hands were tied? Was it really? Or was it that they just didn't see that as a problem because it wasn't a problem they were facing? By the end of the report, I was very critical of the Defence Chiefs because I felt that they could have done something about this. You know, they were they were very important people. You know, people were saluting them all the time. They had lots of power. They um, commanded large amounts of budget and, and money. And I was I was in some ways surprised that they hadn't taken up these issues because ultimately getting anything done just depends on the right goodwill at the right point in government processes. If there's somebody in a senior position who really wants to push something along, then eventually they will find a way to make things happen. Depends where, where it is on your list of priorities. And obviously, they had the whole defence force to run. So, you know, maybe this wasn't very high in their list of priorities. And they didn't see it as a holistic issue in terms of, you know, what we would now say in, in modern day jargon, positioning themselves as an employer of choice and that kind of thing. I think that's also actually an interesting thought that these people who were leaving, they were people who'd grown up in the 60s and the 70s. And they had a quite different attitude to family life than the more senior people who had grown up you know, in almost the pre-baby boomer days. And so some of those guys, the, the more senior ones, just couldn't see it. They couldn't see what the issue was. That was worrying and really quite confronting for me. They were blind to the yeah. issue. Yeah. You ended up speaking with four and a half thousand people at public meetings on and around bases. And 34 years later, and that is actually more respondents than the recent ADF family survey got um, That's sad, last it? year. So, I mean, the fact that people were so passionate that they came out in droves to speak yeah. to you and we kind of still have the same themes coming through with what people are telling me and DCO and, and you know, the minister that the same sort of themes are coming through with obviously things have changed, but there's still problem areas in employment, education, all of those areas. Yeah. But back then you were ahead of the game by speaking to so many people. When you think about that generational thing and the people who are now getting into those late thirties, early forties time in their lives, that's a different generation again. So maybe it's time to talk in a more direct way to that generation and, you know, for somebody to get out there and talk to people again. Of course, the problem is there's always a concern that the information and the insight that you gain from the people that come and talk to you is from the people that are, you know, that, that subset of people that are really passionate about changing things because they've either experienced it themselves or they don't want other people to go through what they went through. But then you have another subset of people that, like you mentioned, some of the service chiefs' wives weren't interested in taking part in, or in helping yeah. organise yeah. it because maybe that just wasn't their experience and they didn't yeah. see a problem in yeah, that absolutely. lifestyle 
world. But then also there's another group that are being affected so severely by defence life and whatever they're experiencing that they, for whatever reason, can't even come forward to, to voice those yeah. concerns. Yeah, yeah. And, and I certainly saw some people who were in that group, um, but not in the public meetings. And in fact, it was one of the things that very vividly remember a conversation I had on one of the bases with one of the, the senior officers who said to me, well, how do you know these people are telling you the truth? How do you know they're not making it up? And I said, you know, you, you're assuming I'm extremely gullible. And, you know, I do apply a certain amount of judgment to what I'm hearing. And I know that what I'm hearing is somewhere in the middle from people who really have managed to navigate this quite happily by themselves and you know, have, have somehow managed to feel that everything is okay for them. And that's good. Uh, and then there are people for whom it's so bad that they just want to get under the doona and, and hide. They don't want anything to do with it. But somewhere in the middle is what I'm hearing from this group of people and what I'm hearing consistently all around the country from these people. And out of that, I actually feel that I'm intelligent enough to make a judgment about whether they're telling me the truth or not. It wouldn't be to the case that you'll be consistently getting the same lies from people around the country. Well, you know, there's, there's a conspiracy of four and a half thousand people to pull the wool over Mrs. Hamilton's eyes. No. Um. <laughs> so some of the main recommendations were commitment to improved family morale, review yes. of postings and promotions policies, yep. um, that Australian Defence Families Information and Liaison Service, which mm. would later go on to yep. become DCO be established. Yeah. This service would have funds to give grants to local community groups, which has resulted in community houses and groups around the country um, being funded via DCO, that this service would also have family liaison officers, local family liaison fund, spouse employment officers, education liaison officers, um, that the service would also develop national strategies for improving family support programs, educational turbulence, improving employment opportunities, to monitor the need and assist with the development of family counselling and information programs, develop and monitor national and state consultative arrangements to give spouses an opportunity to influence decisions. You also recommended an increase in service allowance, changes to reunion travel for families and changes to entitlements related to unaccompanied postings. These are all things that didn't exist before your report. Like to think that people were facing these issues without yes. a service like DCO, without yes, community yes. houses, yes. without, you know, um, what they have now with service allowance and reunion travel entitlements and all of that that exists now because of the recommendations that you May. The first year after I put the report in, I was very pessimistic about what was going to happen. I mean, I knew that Beasley was keen. He'd already said to people in defence, you must get something done about this. Okay, let's, let's get on with it. And then I actually, some of my good sources sent me some of the minutes from some of the internal committees that they were having, which was very naughty of them, of course, and I immediately shredded them. What I was getting from that was that they were saying, oh, she doesn't really understand the service perspective. And, oh, yes, gosh, it's very hard, isn't it? How are we going to do that? You know, we really haven't got the money. A few things had happened, you know, but not a lot. And then we had these two amazing women who I credit with actually having got this done rather than me, because I only gave them the evidence. One of them, in fact, was on to Beasley's case like the day after the report came out. She was Jocelyn Newman, who was then, I think she was the shadow minister for defence at the time. And she was a really interesting woman who had been married to a minister in the Fraser government, who himself was a, an ex-military person. So she'd been a service wife for 20 years. She was really onto this issue. So she was pounding, pounding, pounding about this. 
And then Ros Kelly became Minister for Defence Personnel. And she said to me later that when she became Minister for Defence Personnel, she didn't have a clue what to do. So she thought, oh, there's this Hamilton report thingy. Why don't I do that? And she actually did. She did an enormous amount of it. And I think in something like two years after I'd written the report, she came out in Parliament and produced this whole load of, of recommendations that had been implemented. And so it was a rare instance of a, a report actually turning up and somebody actually doing it. Without yeah. people that were passionate about pushing yeah. the recommendations yeah. forward, what yeah. could have happened? Well, absolutely nothing. It just would have been, you know, ignored. There would have been a report every year, as there was after the first year, to the Office of the Status of Women that said, well, these recommendations are still under consideration. And, you know, they could still have been under consideration 34 years later. But actually, because because of, of those two pushing it from both sides of the political spectrum, actually something happened about it. And that's not to say that there weren't people within the defence force itself who were keen to see action and who saw that opportunity and saw, you know, the way that the... Um, the stars were aligning and jumped on that to push these things through. People yeah. in various places, it's yeah. like they all sort of aligned to come together to, to make it happen. To make it happen, yeah. And it was just incredible serendipity in some ways, but amazing and, and great. Not many people in the public service get to write a report that anybody does anything about, to be perfectly honest. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. and then for it to then go on to create such mm. huge change for defence families and spouses mm. is yeah. just amazing and nothing's been done unlike it within the space since. Hey Military Wife Life community, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the Defence Bank Foundation and the great work they're doing in the defence community. The foundation raises funds to support serving and ex-serving ADF members living with injuries or illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2019, the sole beneficiary of the foundation was the Defence Community Dogs Program, a specialised dog training program which rescues abandoned dogs and trains them through correctional services. 40 service dogs have been trained and given to veterans since the Defence Bank Foundation was established. The program gives dogs, inmates and veterans a second chance at life. No, and it's something that is, is an incredibly important part of, of my career. You know, if I think about the, there are two things that I think about with great happiness in my career and this is one of them so okay if there's a few people passionate about the report and the recommendations okay yep we're going to push forward for these recommendations to actually be implemented what actually happens does it do they say okay prime minister we need this much money how does it work um, well it, it does obviously you need you need the money they would have looked within the defense budget to see where they could reallocate funds for things that they wanted to do. They might have asked for some new money. They probably wouldn't have got some new money because nobody would give defence new money for this because they got so much anyway, you know, that they'd want it reallocated. And it would just go up the chain, you know, of command and go to the minister and she would tick them. And I guess, like you mentioned, not people are not just going to freely give money for it because no. it's no. not like they can tangibly say this money is going towards a warship or this no, money exactly. is going towards, yeah. Yeah. you know, missiles or whatever the case yeah. may be. No, it's I going mean, towards yeah. something that is unknown because, yeah. you know, it's, it's not yeah. their experience that this is needed from yeah. their perspective. So, you know, all credit to the people in defence at that time who actually had the foresight to say, we're taking a punt on this. You know, we're not buying a submarine or we're not 
you know, buying a new gun or, you know, whatever we're doing. <laughs> we're actually taking a punt on the welfare of families and we think this money will help. Yeah. And it paid off. <laughs> and it paid off, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. obviously once those recommendations were were implemented, it would go on to create all that is offered to defence families and spouses now, like, you know, yeah. DCO, Defence Families Australia, the funding for community houses, all that comes with that was because of that report, because none of that existed before that. So what were people actually doing before that? Were they just left high and dry to, you know, look after themselves? Like, was there anything before that? Or, you know, was there, it? There wasn't, there wasn't a coordinated system. I mean, apart from anything else, it depends depended on the three different services. So, you know, the range of support that there was varied very much between the services. You know, some were quite family-oriented, some really wished they'd go away. So, you know, there, there was that issue. So there wasn't, in that sense, a coordinated voice for families within the defence community. It very much depended on, you know, where you were, what your base commander was like, how sympathetic they were to particular issues. And in some cases, you know, they were some commanders were very good at getting people within their bases to engage with the local community and try to help um, and some weren't. Like you mentioned, yeah. there wasn't that national consistency. No, not not a national consistency, no. At the time of its introduction, the now DCO would obviously have a massive positive change for families. How do you think an organisation like DCO stays relevant? When you wrote your report, spouses at the meetings were saying, and this is a quote, you simply have to be desperate to get help. And you wrote in your report, defence and ADF need to prevent their position from becoming desperate. How does DCO and an organisation like that stay relevant for families, considering that they were implemented 34 years ago for a, a, a totally different generation of, of spouses and families and obviously have continued to provide that support but there hasn't been that huge overhaul or huge change within the support services like back yeah. then with the introduction of them yeah i mean in some ways i mean they, they've been doing you know they've been doing a good job within within their parameters they've, they've been doing a good job but one of the reasons why i'm at the moment particularly interested in this is that the prime minister has just announced that we're going to increase defense capability in this country and you know there are very good reasons for doing that he's looking at probably skills that are quite highly specialized they will be very valuable skills and i think that's the moment when you need to think now are those people going to be comfortable in this environment are they going to feel that they're a bit left high and dry in this environment the kinds of families that those people have might be quite different there's the possibility of a changing environment and finding out what's going to fit that environment i think the other thing is i mean just the fact that we're in quite such a different world now than we were 34 years ago we can easily do things remotely that need to be done. So I think there's a lot of looking that could be done about how you use remote resources to support service families better. I think the fact that when I wrote the report, nobody was on active service. Nobody was deployed anywhere on active service. There were people on exercises and that was a big problem in terms of the length of, of absence from the family and the effect that had on family dynamics. But we're now in a different environment where people are going into danger zones, absolutely. You so know, of course so that adds an, another layer to it adds another what layer families to need. What families need. Yes. Yeah. So there's 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 different things that families need now. There's a different environment for service families. After COVID, you know, the world is going to be a different place anyway, because all pandemics shift the world, you know, right back to the Black Death. They they all shift the world in some way. We're going to be shifted, we don't know how yet. 
it's time to have a look in that context of expanding our capability going forward to think about we actually need to talk to people who are there now living this and to start to think about on the basis of what they say, what's happening now, and then also think about at the same time what we need into the future for the kind of people we're going to want to recruit into the defence force to meet this capability that we're trying to, to build. Yeah, because like yeah. you mentioned, the way that defence are increasing capability is going to call for highly skilled people. It's not yeah. like you can have that turnover of people who the average time of service is eight years. Mm. You need people to want to stay for longer than that in order yeah. to be able to fulfil that increased capability yeah, into absolutely. the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in order to do that, families and, and spouses need to have that support that yeah. they need in 2020 to be able to allow the, the military member to, to meet that demand. Yeah. And if I can say something that's probably going to be controversial, I think the self-sufficiency line that is now the accepted norm has gone just a tiny bit too far. I think, you know, yes, we all do want to be self-sufficient. You know, if we're we're self-sufficient, we can provide for ourselves and our family a good environment, then we're happy. But even the strongest people can be in situations where they need support and need help. And I think maybe we might have lost sight of that a little bit. Because you can do three deployments and then it might be the fourth one that you need that help. But you were, why was I self-sufficient for the first three? Because I've done this again and again. And I'm used to this, but it's that continual cycle of having to to go through that and the emotional, I guess, baggage that you take into each one. Sometimes people do get to a point where, you know, their needs do change each time they go through a deployment. Just because they were okay last time doesn't mean they'll be okay the next one. That's analogous with the situation that I saw where people were moving from posting to posting so often that they were just worn down by the effort of doing it, you know, by the effort of making new connections every time. And they didn't want to do it anymore. When you were obviously meeting with people, there were a number of areas in which spouses said they would like help and advice, which including induction programs for new service families and potential service families, programs to help spouses and children cope with members' absences and to help in the reintegration of the family Mm -hmm. on the member's return, the lack of information, relying on the defence member to pass on information and support services, no set path to dealing with absences and reintegration. It all still exists. Yes, yeah. yeah, So we're not reinventing the wheel. Those people were telling, families and spouses were telling you 34 years ago that they need support in those areas. So to build those foundations helps in all other areas because when you feel supported from the, you know, the ground up sort of thing, you're able to deal with the other. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because you know that that there's something there, you know, that's stopping you from falling completely down. That's proven. That's, you know, that research has gone into it and that's, you know, from a psychological standpoint, from a, you know, um, human behavior standpoint, this is what the majority of people would be going through at this time and this is how we can help you navigate that. So I guess, you know, without those foundations, there's going to be cracks in other areas that all sort of build up to be this huge issue when you do go into that fourth deployment or you do go into being a a defence family and and don't know what's happening or or how to sort of cope with it or, you know, even any sort of guidance into reintegrating the member back. Like all of those those aspects really do create those little cracks that end up being 
okay, we can't do this anymore. You also recommended that employment officers um, would familiarise themselves with the local employment market and make contact with major employers in the area. They would also try and overcome, to some extent, the reluctance of some employers to take on spouses. Part of the employment officers' work ended up being making computers available at DCO offices. They had um, job boards and they liaised with employers. Technology took over those gaps for DCO and um, job readiness support like PAP was introduced. But the area of employer insights and connection sort of dropped off along the way. How important do you think it is for DCO to have input in the area of spouse employment? Defence Families Australia are working on educating employers on what it means to be a partner-friendly employer. It's sort of like those issues existed back then and, you know, some things were being done to kind of counteract them. But that one area of educating employers about why it's important that they are a partner-friendly employer sort of dropped off along the way. In the end, there's there's no substitute for actually being on the ground and knowing what the situation is on the ground. You know, so if you're in Townsville and you're looking for a job in Townsville, you actually need someone who understands what the Townsville employment market is. It's very, you know, you can make a template that says, you know, this is the kind of thing you ought to do, but somebody's got to be out there doing it. People actually don't want to know much about government except when they need to know it and they need to know it where they need to know it. I think where you've got a cohort of people who all have these issues about employment, you know, in a revolving kind of community, then there's some sense in having some some template for dealing with that. So your report found that dissatisfaction on the part of families was having a significant impact on the morale of serving members and in many cases was the cause of resignation from the services. You wrote that despite Defence having a general thought that there will always be a higher turnover than usual due to the nature of the job and the lifestyle, long-term management of the Australian Defence Force and the economic impact of training and developing members needs to be taken into account. Our US and UK overseas counterparts have always seemed to be on the front foot with progressive and updated research and outcomes because of that research. You noted that in a white paper produced by the US Army back back then, yep. they said the nature of the commitment of the service member dictates to the Army a moral obligation to support their families. And I actually think that's right. They take, I think, a much more proactive approach in many ways than we do at the moment in Australia. If Defence were to go out and do a report and visit all the bases and recreate what you did 34 years ago, it would be written on paper what needs to be done so there'd be no (laughs) way around it no that's right yeah well it might not be written on paper it might be typed yeah your computer Um, (laughs) but it'd still be listed like it is on paper yeah yeah Yeah, i wrote mine in longhand on an airplane yeah and then somebody typed it up in defense it was amazing but it would be it would be written down it's an audit you know it's a consultation with people and then it's a, well, let's just look at this and see, you know, what the possibilities are, what we want to commit ourselves to doing, how, what we want our attitude to be to our serving personnel and their families, and how we want to translate that attitude into actions. And, and I think it's time to do that again. So I guess, where to from here? Do you think that it would take having the same serendipitous moments with having those people within defence and within government coming together and, and being passionate about pushing forward for change? Like where to from here? I I think it is. I think it is a matter of there being the right people in the right places who are interested in changing. And 
I'm pretty optimistic that Minister Chester, who is the Minister for Defence Personnel, has an interest in these issues and would be a good minister to have this kind of conversation with. And it's it's really a matter of the climate being right, the time being right. I think the time is right. And there is a, a certain amount of on the ground talking that I think really does need to be done. In the same instance, though, as well, obviously coming out of COVID, people are going to be looking for stable employment and obviously defence is stable employment. So, I mean, there's going to obviously yes. inevitably be an increase in sign-ups for defence across the board, Army, Navy, Air Force, because of that stability with employment, which is then going to, I guess, skew the the figures in regard to, oh, but we have all these people that want to be in defence. How long will they stay? How long will their families put up with it if they aren't supported is is the question that you ask at that point. You know, it's all very well, you've recruited all these people, but if they're only going to stay two or three years and then the first time somebody who's joined up in Sydney gets posted to Perth and asks their wife or husband to leave their extended family behind and go off to the other side of the country. You know, the first time that happens and give up their job, maybe, you know, are they are they going to stay? And just the general general issues that always arise eventually. Not everybody who joins defence will be prepared. Do you think that no matter what changes are made, what improvements for families, that there will always be, I guess, an issue with retention? There will always be a burnout period that families can live the lifestyle? I think that's an interesting question. There are always some people who are never happy in whatever situation they find themselves. They're the sort of glass half empty kind of people. And some of those people will inevitably decide that that's, it's not for them. On the other hand, you don't want people who would not normally have that kind of attitude to develop that kind of attitude because you're failing to provide the basic levels of support that keep them afloat in sometimes difficult family circumstances. So I think, you know, you will never stop people from leaving because they decide this life isn't for them. Because for some people who join up, in particularly if there's a big wave of defence recruiting, as you say, there will be some people who join up and this life won't be for them. You know, it won't be the life that the member actually expects, let alone their families. But I think for both economic and for actually, I would say moral reasons, there's a responsibility on defence to minimise that kind of fallout. What do you think about this phrase, just because it's better than what it was, doesn't mean it can't be better? You've never got to where you could be. You can always improve on what you've got. You know, maybe you're never going to get to the absolute pinnacle, but there's always a little bit you can build on. Many, many, many years ago, even before did the Hamilton Report, I used to work for one of the great public servants of this country, um, H.C. Coombs. And I asked him one day what his attitude to public service was. And he said, it's a life of pragmatic incrementalism. You you take things and you grow them where you see the opportunity a little bit at a time. So if something's working, you see a little way of making it work better and you make it better. If something's not working, you see a little way of tweaking it so you can make it. You very rarely in public service get the opportunity to make a dramatic change. But You can all the time work in increments. You can build things up. I've always remembered that conversation that I had with him. And that's carried me through my career thinking, you know, how can you just make things just that little bit better all the time? I mean, why are you still so passionate about the area of defence so many years on and, you know, with not having that connection of being a spouse or being the partner of a military member? What keeps you so interested interested. in defence? I'm interested because I still, I suppose there's, 
there's a bit of me, and this is, this is a terrible thing to say because it's a very girly thing to say in some ways. I feel that if it's not good enough yet, it's in some ways my fault, you know? I should have done it better so that they would have got more out of it. And yet that's ridiculous. Yeah, because just yeah. imagine if your yeah. report never existed yeah. and yeah. we wouldn't have what we yeah. have now. But I suppose, you know, always... 20, 30 years after you've done something, you, you can always think, I should have done that. You know, I should have just tweaked it like that. I should have just put the boot in a bit more there or, or whatever it was. That, so I still feel a responsibility for it. I think that's what it is. I feel that, you know, I did this work. Something's happened. Not enough has happened. And so somehow I feel a responsibility to at least keep poking at it and say, can't we make some more happen? And why not? Why not? You, you did yeah, it back then, so... Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Well, Sue, thank you so much for coming on the Military Wife Life podcast and talking to us about all that you did those years ago and, you know, obviously this legacy that you've created because today defence spouses and families and members are still benefiting from what you did back then for us and continues to be implemented for us now. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been good fun. Thank you. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 